So what we want to do is show if you want resilience, if you want an ability to hold your attention on a subject matter, if you want that laser like focus, the foundation of that is sleep quality. And if you want calmness of the mind, we're talking about mental health. Listen, 75% of the anxiety population has, have dysfunctional breathing. That's what the liter literature is showing. How many people with anxiety and panic disorder and depression, they're going to their psychotherapist, they're going to their counselor, they're going to their psychologist, to their psychiatrist, to their medical doctor. Who's looking at their breathing? Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Lynn and welcome to the Mouth Brain Connection. Have you ever felt that you weren't given the answers that you needed to get your health on track? On this show, I'll take you on a journey through the truth about how to really be healthy. As a practicing dentist, I experienced the same questions as you did, but as a clinician. Ever wondered why dentists are segregated from medical practitioners? It's a strange disconnect we've created in our society and it means we see oral disease as separate from the rest of the body. Well, in the real world, it doesn't happen like that. Over many years, I've collated patient experiences, clinical techniques, and multidisciplinary approaches looking for the answers you've been searching for. It turns out that the root causes of all dental diseases are the precursors that fuel systemic diseases. The mouth, through cut and dry anatomical nerve connection, blood supply, lymph drainage, and muscle innervation, is the most tightly regulated part of your body. To heal the body, you must align your oral health. On this podcast, I'll be showcasing the best and brightest minds in the world of functional, biological, oral systemic medicine. We'll be sharing with you the practical tips to prevent and reverse dental diseases through nutrition, sleep, and postural correction that heal your mouth and body as one. So let's get started. I'm excited to explore the mouth-brain connection with you. If you suffer from conditions like asthma, anxiety and depression, or sleep disorders like insomnia, your underlying problem may be related to dysfunctional breathing. Symptoms most commonly reported by people with poor breathing patterns include the inability to take a satisfying breath, disproportionate breathlessness during rest or physical exercise, frequent yawning or even sighing, or the feeling of just not getting enough air. One breathing exercise method that has showed success in helping people reverse these conditions is the Bateco breathing method. Early on, it was popular with adults and children suffering from asthma. But over the past number of years, the Bateco method has shown to be effective in helping improve a number of breathing-related problems, including asthma, rhinitis, and hay fever, neurological issues such as anxiety, stress, and panic attacks, childhood development issues such as dental health, craniofacial development problems, and ADHD, and sleep disorder breathing patterns, including insomnia, snoring, central sleep apnea, and obstructive sleep apnea. The technique was developed in 1952 by Ukrainian Dr. Konstantin Pavlovich Buteyko. The Buteyko method is a breathing technique designed to improve functional breathing patterns. While breathing is an involuntary action, it is subject to change by stresses of your everyday life. Things like diet and food, lifestyle choices and environmental factors can all influence how you breathe. Functional breathing involves breathing in and out through the nose, where the breath is light, regular, effortless with the primary movement from the diaphragm. Today, my guest is Patrick McEwen, president of Bateco Professionals International. He's also a member of the management board and the advisory faculty of the International Academy of Breathing and Health. He's been published in one of the leading otolaryngology journals, and he has published up to eight books. In this interview, we discuss his book, The Breathing Cure, 
which is a textbook aimed at professionals based on his experience of working with thousands of clients and also training hundreds of healthcare professionals worldwide. As a trained dental professional, I can say that Patrick's work has helped to fill a void where there is a gap between what we know about the respiratory system and how we functionally help people to breathe better. I highly recommend listening to this talk. It runs a little longer than our normal hour interview, but that's because this is such a deep area and Patrick has such a deep knowledge and we will definitely be getting him back on for a second interview. But this is a critical episode of the Mouth Brain Connection and I really hope you enjoy my interview with Patrick McEwen. Well, today we're talking about how breathing affects your health more than ever and the man responsible for this conversation that is being furthered and furthered throughout the world is Patrick McEwen. I'm very honored to have him here today. He's in the UK. He's very kindly stayed up late for us. He, I know he values his sleep very, um, you know, very closely to him. So he's been very kind to stay up late for us. And I'm really excited to dive in to his new book, The Breathing Cure. Patrick McEwen, thank you for joining me today. For sure. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Len. It's been a pleasure. We've just, this is your eighth book, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. It's it's <laughs> around eight. Well, I had another book that was published, but only in Polish. So yeah, but- I think give or take, it's my eighth book. I started a new one as well, which is on focus and concentration. And, I mean, uh, it's it's amazing where breathing can take you, right? And it's kind of like you can see how you've just like you know followed this kind of path as to how influential it is to the human body, human mind, uh, you know, our um, our growth and development, but. Yeah, you know, I thought you know. There's so much in this new one. We're gonna we're, we're gonna get into it as much as possible. But I thought we'd just go back to your story to kind of help people to understand how you wrote eight books and how you got into this whole breathing conversation. Yeah, it was primarily by accident. I was the child growing up as a chronic mouth breather. I had asthma. My nose was always stuffy, and um, I did have sleep disorder breathing, but I didn't know that but I was tired in school. And I remember being in university, I was staying in Uppsala University in student dorms and the students told me there that they could hear me snoring and then I would stop breathing. And I had, I didn't know that was called obstructive sleep apnea, you know, but um, I, it really had a tremendous negative impact in terms of academic achievement. I got my grades, but I had to work very hard for them. I felt that I was a little bit always highly strong living in my head even though I didn't consider myself as having anxiety, but my mind would have been quite active and racing. And asthma was was always there. You know, I've had a number of hospitalizations with it. And it was in 1998, I read a newspaper article. So it's kind of bizarre, but despite going to healthcare professionals for 20 years with a condition, it took one single newspaper article for the penny to drop because it said two things. It says, it's very important and vitally important for human beings to breathe in and out through their nose. I was never doing that. And it also said that breathing should be light. We shouldn't be hearing breathing during rest. And I wasn't doing that either because I was always caught for breath. So I used those exercises from the Buteco method. And at the time, my background is in economics. I never, I was never going to go into to teaching breathing. It was something that happened a couple of years later. I was driving from one side of Ireland to the other and just kind of a good feeling come up and just really felt the right thing to do was to start embarking and going down the whole road of breathing. So I changed careers and it's been a it's been an absolutely wonderful journey. It wasn't so easy at the start. Logically, it wouldn't have been the best. It wouldn't be something I'd recommend for any 
um, son or daughter to to embark on. <laughs> I think it's it's good now, but twenty years ago it wasn't, and breathing just wasn't taken seriously. And most of my work at the time was with asthma, and the one advantage that I had was I had twenty five years of having asthma. I was there. And I knew how to apply breathing exercises and it made a tremendous difference to my quality of life. So I knew that. So regardless of any person who was going to criticize what I was doing, I could show results. And the science, we don't always know the science and what's going on with breathing and we still don't. And here's the thing, that breathing is really, really vast. And the more I'm in it, like it's 20 years on now, the more you realize just what you don't know, it is vast. But 20 years teaching it, you're happy to acknowledge that you don't know because you have the confidence knowing that you, you know a certain amount of it. And and you can kind of rely on the fact that you know how important it is. You've experienced it and you've seen yes. how it changes people's lives, right? And yes. you're so right that, the, like, like, you know, the science is kind of there, but it isn't. It's, um, you know... I mean, there's no way that, um, you know, the medical profession can say that we've, you know, described and explained breathing in, in a way that we apply it, um, you know, to, it's just not there. And so, yes. you know, there's this big gap. I can certainly, you know, I, I'm thinking of the time that you went into breathing and you can see how underdeveloped this field was you know it's still un underdeveloped you know there's there's literally a handful of i mean there's more around the world but there's literally a handful of people you know that are mm. kind of the you know the, the authorities on breathing so it's still really early so it was obviously a very brave step for you um and and it's not always easy for people like yourself but you've definitely paved the way i think last year was a big one for kind of one of those penny drop moments yes. right yes. <laughs> kind of yeah the, yeah the it consciousness was an amazing year wasn't it like the, yeah. the conscious just shifted and um we'll talk a little bit about that later but um it's amazing when they the, the penny drops in the sense that you said you wrote that newspaper article but you know a lot of the times in the in the dental chair you know i'm describing these things and we're trying to move around symptoms that a patient's experiencing you know whether it's sleep or whether it's um difficulty breathing through the nose and when you see that penny drop and they look at you and, and they say what well, it's as simple as that it really does change people's lives. So, you know, I, your yes. work is so important. And, um, you know, I, I, I really can't stress as to how much this, this can help people. But I, I thought to start, why don't we dive back into that, um, those initial experiences you were going through with asthma? Because I see this a lot. It's a difficult um, you know, topic to broach. And, you know, retraining breathing is very difficult too. But describe the symptoms and then you know, your growing understanding of, of how asthma was affected you know by your own breathing and how you kind of changed that loop i suppose like if you're a kid growing up with asthma and if you're feeling tired in class and many asthmatics feel tired and if you were to look at australia for example as one of the highest populations of asthma per capita in the world i think it's the second highest or at least it was um and you, you, you just deal with it, you know, you just kind of get on with it because you don't know any different. And you know, it's not right. You know, there's times that you that I remembered going out with Boy Scouts and we went on a big, long hike and I wheezed all the way through it. And I don't know what age I was there, but I was just totally caught for breath. And it's not a nice feeling. And then if you're caught out without medication, but you know what, that's the way it is. And like anything else, like asthma of any condition, it's not too bad either. You you can You can work with it. The one thing I would say is 
why on earth was there no research into functional breathing patterns? And I'm talking about addressing breathing from a biochemical point of view, breathing through the nose, doing reduced volume breathing to normalize breathing. Because when I came across that, within one week, my symptoms reduced by 50%. And that wasn't my imagination. And I remember somebody saying to me it was placebo. And I said, doctor, I said, this couldn't be placebo. I've worked at that time with about five or 6,000 people. I said, we can have a four-year-old child here. And you have a four-year-old child who's constantly wheezing. And we can show that kid simple breathing exercises to improve their asthma control. And it's not that we are, we are not competing against medication. All we're trying to do is to prevent that feedback loop there. Because if you think of any child or adult with asthma, when the airway is narrow, you feel you're not getting enough air and your breathing starts to become a little bit labored. You're just feeling that you can't take a satisfying breath. You have some chest tightness. And for some kids and adults, it will go into a wheeze. And for other kids or adults, it might go into a cough or they may be fine until they get a head cold. And the problem with asthma is that the condition is feeding in itself. Your airways are narrowing. You're feeling you're not getting enough air. And the natural response there is to start breathing harder to try and alleviate that feeling of suffocation. But the harder breathing is inevitably often through the mouth and you're taking cold, dry air again into the lungs, which moisture has been sucked out of the airways, which in turn is feeding back into airway narrowing. And the other aspect is that when we think of the airway, we can't think of the airway of the nose, the upper airway and the throat to be isolated from the lungs. Because if we have inflammation in the lungs, it's going to travel up to the nose. And if we have inflammation of the nose, it's going to travel down to the lungs. Now, when we consider the unified air, we, we have to consider sleep. And nasal obstruction is very common with people with asthma. Sleep disorder breathing is very common with people with asthma. And people with asthma don't just have asthma. Like me, they are tired. And again, you know, when you think of kids in school, and this is why I'm, I'm embarking on a book on focus and concentration, because society demands that we focus and concentrate. I was that kid in school and I wanted to do well for myself. And I put myself, I was studying 10 and 12 hours. This is when I got a bit older. In secondary school, to give you an example, in primary school, I was pretty much top of the class. And when I went into secondary school or high school, I went from the top of the class to the bottom of the class. And no explanation. And I was seen as being disinterested, falling asleep at the desk. You know, so here is society telling us, telling this kid at 12 or 13 years of age, you better do well in exams, otherwise you're going to be on the scrap heap. So there's enough pressures already on these children. The teacher is demanding that the kid concentrates. Society is demanding that the kid is concentrating. Nobody is looking at the kid's breathing and nobody is looking at their sleep quality. So, you know, and the other thing I'm going to say about breathing is breathing was in a box in left of field for far too long. And, you know, I've made a commitment within this new book. There's not going to be any mention of yoga. And there's not going to be any word mindfulness in it. And none of those words are going to be in it because what I want to do is I want to take breathing out of left of field and yoga and mindfulness, all great stuff. But I want to take it out of that and I want to get it into the hands of the population because a lot of people, when they hear mindfulness, especially alpha males and teenagers and things like that, they can withdraw a little bit. So what we want to do is show if you want resilience, if you want an ability to hold your attention on a subject matter, if you want that laser like focus, 
the foundation of that is sleep quality. And if you want calmness of the mind, we're talking about mental health. Listen, 75% of the anxiety population has, have dysfunctional breathing. That's what the liter literature is showing. How many people with anxiety and panic disorder and depression, they're going to their psychotherapist, they're going to their counselor, they're going to their psychologist, to their psychiatrist, to their medical doctor. Who's looking at their breathing? And at the very most, they're probably told, go home and take a few deep breaths for yourself. But also, who is looking at their sleep? Can we really expect to deal with mental health issues unless we improve sleep quality? And we know it ourselves, the, the kid who wakes up and they have poor quality sleep, of course they're going to be in bad humour. If we wake up and we've had sleep deprivation, we wake up almost feeling as if we've had a hangover. We're not going to be in a good mood that day. And you can, you can imagine the adult, and I can talk about adults coming into me over the years, and I talk to people with depression and say, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And they're saying they're waking up exhausted. Has anybody ever asked you about your, your sleep quality? No, because too often the connection is that depression is causing exhaustion, but that not, might not necessarily be the case. We could have a lot of adults when insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea go together, the risk of depression is higher. Chronic exhaustion is going to lead to mental health issues. We have to look at sleep and it has been overlooked. And the one thing I have in my favour is I've no dental license. And that gives me a little bit of freedom to put information out there that I can support because nobody's going to slap me on the wrists. And the dental industry have really failed in their quest in this one. There has been a handful of wonderful dentists, wonderful doctors, wonderful orthodontists, medical doctors, ENT surgeons, a handful of them. But the industry has really lagged in this one. You know, how come dentists aren't trained with the child coming in and the child is sitting in front of them and lying back in the chair? The dentist can easily spot the high risk factors for sleep disorder breathing the high upper narrow palate, scalloping of the tongue, compromised airway, mouth breathing, nasal obstruction, tongue tie. It doesn't take a genius. Where has the industry, where have they gone with this one? They have really missed out. So that's part of the reason why I put out the books because I made this thing back and maybe I'm talking too much, but I made a decision back 20 years ago. Healthcare professionals didn't want to know about breathing. So I said, let's Let's see, how can we reach out to the people who need it the most? I write a book and I wrote a book first in 2003 called Close Your Mouth and the, or Asthma Free Naturally. I think one, I wrote a couple anyway in the first couple of years and I put them, put them out there. 10, 15 dollars, you buy a book, you have all of the exercises in the book. The person reads it, puts it into practice and if it works, they know there's something in it and word spreads and that's what's part of it. That's how it happened. It's a it's an amazing story. You're not you're not talking too much, by the way. It's it's absolutely <laughs> fascinating how the um we're putting all the pieces together. I want to go back to your your breathing exercises, but just before we do, I just want to describe because I was dentally trained, and mm. all of this was very foreign to me initially as I started to kind of 
were, I, I began to see these symptoms in patients, but my training did not in any way or form, um, you know, describe what a, how a breathing pattern related to uh, orofacial development, sleep and so forth. You know, the first introduction I had was a, a, a practitioner I worked with used to um, make splints and, you know, mm-hmm. that was, you know, for snoring, they, they put a splint in, that was it. And so the, the kind of pieces between are re- a lot in terms of how you understand, you know, the physiology. They're really the disconnect between the medical and dental field really yes. does make it hard because you, you know, sleep is, you know, really in the realms of medical and dentistry and med- um, the medical system don't talk very well. So it's yes. a very disconnected road there. Once you put it all together, it just makes so much sense so quickly. Yeah. But, you know, there's just some simple plugs we need to do to put that picture together. And you're right, like it's, it's so simple in a dental chair. Like it is literally like the easiest thing um, a dental practitioner will ever do is to identify, you know, craniofacial abnormalities, a a tongue or a, you know mouth breathing habit, and then um, you know connected to their sleep habits. But you know we, we've got a whole system here that doesn't think together. Yeah. So, but it's it's amazing how you know it, you you it's a five minute spiel now. But mate, you you pull the whole thing together so neatly. I just want to go back into because I, I I do get a lot of um you know parents talking about this about their children with asthma and you said mm. you um you know with a four year old you, you can take them through a simple exercise to uh you know slow down their breathing and their their wheezing can um can improve almost immediately. Just can you just describe that ex- exercise what you do with with a with a four year old sure. just briefly sure. so we can kind of start to get a feel of how this works. Sure. Well, I suppose the foundation with any child is to make sure that they are breathing in and out through the nose. And, um, you know, if we were to ask the question, what does the mouth do in terms of breathing for the human being? If you breathe through the mouth, does the mouth even have one function in terms of the breath coming into the body? And the answer is no. The, The mouth is simply a hole. It doesn't warm up. It doesn't moisten. It doesn't filter. It doesn't have nasal nitric oxide. It doesn't regulate volume. And mouth breathing is synonymous with upper chest breathing. Mouth breathing reduces oxygen uptake in the blood. You're more likely to be in that fight or flight response. You're not getting good amplitude of the diaphragm. You know, and yet 25 to 50% of study children persistently mouth breathe. How on earth are we going to fix asthma? Unless we, we switch, the very foundation is to improve the filtration mechanism of the nose. And I know that sounds so simple. But when we look at the extent of contact of the small air sacs in the lungs to the blood capillaries, that amounts in an adult to between 50 and 100 square meters. So if we were to think of what organ in the human body has most contact with the atmosphere, it's not the skin. The skin is two meters. If you were exposed totally naked on a sunny day, the skin is exposed two meters to the atmosphere. Your lungs in an adult are between 50 and 100 square meters. So it's very important that the nose is used. Now with a child, if they have the mouth open, why do they mouth breathe? Is it because of nasal obstruction or is it because of a habit? Or is it because they have a small nose or is it because they have a breathing pattern disorder? Nasal obstruction, is it the front of the nose or is it the back of the nose? Um, And kids, when they come in to me, typically I have them wear a tape across the lips. So the first thing I do is I say to the parents, I'm going to bring the children through these exercises. We usually have a few kids together. We don't we don't now because of COVID, but normally. And uh, we have the kids wearing the tape. 
And then I start off with the very first exercise, which is just getting the child used to holding their breath. And I have them breathe in through the nose and out through the nose and pinch the nose and hold and hold the breath for maybe three or four seconds. And then the child lets go. And then I have the kid do it again after about half a minute, hold again for three or four seconds and let go. And I just get them used to just to holding their nose. And then I say, OK, well, the next thing is I'm going to have you hold your breath for a little bit longer because I want you to think that you're in a swimming pool and kids love going swimming. They love with their little diving stick. They'll throw it into the bottom of the pool. And here you go. You take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and you pinch your nose and hold. And you're just gently nodding your head up and down, holding your breath. And you keep holding the breath and the kid is swimming down. They're going down to the bottom of the pool. They're picking up their diving stick and up for air again. You tell them to let go. And breath holding starts to open up their nose. Now, then we start. So part of the reason that we have the children taped is because I want to see, is the obstruction to the back of the nose? What's the reason? You know, does the child have enlarged adenoids? So if the child is feeling nasal obstruction, we have them do this exercise five or six times. And if the child is getting relief now and can breathe through the nose, now we know at least part, if not all of the issue is because of obstruction to the front of the nose. And I have the children continue to wear the tape for about 40 minutes because I want to see, can the children functionally and adequately breathe through their nose when they do the exercises? So from that, then we have them do steps exercise. And I usually have the parents say about five, five yards or five paces away. And I have the child breathe in through your nose, breathe out and pinch your nose and hold and walk to mom. And the child lets go. And then they rest and they come back. They breathe in through their nose and out through their nose. They pinch their nose and they walk back to me. They let go. And we do that a few times. And then we count the number of paces that they can hold their breath for. So the steps exercise or the paces exercise, depending on who is working with it, that's both the measurement, but it's also the main exercise for kids. Now, in terms of slow breathing, I have to say, I'm not a real fan of slow breathing with children. Kids are kids. Um, I can only understand I have a 10 year old inside and I know if I was to try and get her to do slow breathing, you might as well forget about it. So if I can't do it with my own kid, I can't do it with other kids. But I do it with children if they have anxiety or if they're very much upper chest breathing. Then we work on having them lying on their back with their knees bent and just a little, little you know, a book resting on the abdomen that as the child is breathing in, that the book is gently rising. And as they breathe in, the book is gently falling. But I like to do physical exercise with them. So then with the children taped, I have them walking. So they're walking around the room. So you have three or four kids or maybe five or six kids walking. And then I have them block one nostril. And then I have them gently jogging with one nostril blocked. Because what I'm doing is I keep on adding an extra load onto them. And I want to show these kids, you're able to jog, not only with your mouth closed, but with actual fact that one of your nostrils blocked. You don't have to have your mouth open during physical exercise. You don't have to have your mouth open when you're watching television. And you don't have to have your mouth open during rest or during sleep. However, I used to get a bit frustrated with some kids because you'd go through all of the exercises with them. What's the nose for? The nose is for smelling and all of this. And you have the children do all of the exercises. It takes a fair bit of energy. You know, you're giving a lot of energy to the kids. And after they go, and a week later, they come in and the mouth is wide open again. So, okay, what's the nose for? And we go through all of the exercises and 
We know the children can breathe through their nose. They're wearing the tape, the whole lot. Off they go again. And a week later, mouth wide open again. And so, oh my God, what's going on here? So it was a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, probably about five years ago, that I started getting children to tape up during the day because I was placing too much emphasis on making sure that the child could adequately breathe through the nose. But, and I wasn't placing enough emphasis on changing the behaviour. And changing the behaviour was a big, big part of it, especially with some kids. So we say to the children now, any child who is working, I need you to wear tape around the mouth for 15 minutes during wakefulness, especially when you're distracted. And if you do happen to forget about breathing through your nose, as soon as you open your mouth, the tape is elasticated and it pulls your lips together. And it continuously is reminding the brain that the nose is for breathing. So instead of the mother and dad feeling like they're like a broken record, having to constantly say to the child, lips together or close the mouth or breathe through your nose, we get the tape to do the work. Because when the child forgets about it, they feel the tension. And also during sleep, you know, I think the biggest kind of perceived kind of risk that was always presented with us was what do you do? How do you get a child to breathe through the nose during sleep? And that was part of the reason why I brought out, it was, it's a called tape called myotape and I'm not here to plug it or anything like that, but it was, it was to serve a purpose because I, you know, with children, when you're working with so many children and when you know the risk of sleep disorder breathing and you know that it's not just about breathing through the nose during sleep, but it's also about breathing through the nose during rest. It's about the child breathing through the nose most of the time anyway during physical exercise. It's about that habit. And you've got the nose and the connection with the diaphragm, nasal breathing and the phenonasal breathing and the dimensions of functional breathing all go hand in hand. So I suppose that's the part, Stephen. And, you know, all of the children's exercises are up for free on YouTube. Every single exercise for kids are for free. Um, we made a decision on that about five years ago. Put it out there because, you know, you have kids in countries they can't afford instructors. They don't have instructors. And with all the number of children with asthma, why not give them some simple tools to help improve their asthma control, to help decongest their nose and to, you know, to help improve their quality of life and their sleep. It's so simple, isn't it? And you really do mm. wonder how we haven't built this, you know, into um, you know childhood edu education systems when it really can change a kid's life. Yes. You know, I, I think we've really kind of you know misunderstood how important breathing is, and I, I want to dive into that because your your new book, The Breathing Cue, has a lot of details and a lot of the the new scientific kind of ways that we're classifying and understanding breathing. But can you just explain to people before we start doing that what's happening? Why are you telling a child to to pinch their nose? What what's happening in the nasal airway when you're um, when you're holding over the nose and holding the breath? It's not fully known. Um, you know, the, the traditional theory on it is that as you hold the breath, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood and it's the increase in carbon dioxide that's helping to to open up the nose, decongest the nose. But it may all, there may also be other factors involved because if you breathe in through your nose and out through your nose and hold your nose, nitric oxide is going to pool in the nasal cavity as well during that time. And you may also have an increase of heat because you're not taking that cold, dry air in through the nose. Um, another factor is that you may be activating a sympathetic response, which may be helping to open up the nose. But the human nose 
it's an amazing organ. And I don't think, that, you know, the normal person on the street understands just the extent of which the space it occupies in the skull. So I always say to students, I say, put your tongue into the roof of your mouth and drag your tongue all the way along the roof of the mouth until you feel the soft palate at the back. And the roof of your mouth is the floor of your nose. So your nose is sitting. The nasal cavity is sitting right above that. And the more we use the nose, the better it works. But when we have a child coming in, say, for example, the child. And the only thing I would say is if a child has pulmonary hypertension, don't do long breath holds. If they, if they have epilepsy, go very, very easy with them. Type 1 diabetes, keep an eye on their blood sugar levels. And even with a kid with severe asthma, you can still have them do the steps exercise, but just to get them to have good control afterwards of their breathing. So as a marker, we would expect a child of, say, five years of age to be able to achieve about 40 to 50 paces. And a child for, say, seven or eight years of age to be able to achieve maybe 60, 70 paces. And a child eight or nine years of age to be able to get, say, 70, 80 paces. And if a child is able to reach their goal, they will have significantly reduced nasal congestion. And oftentimes the question that parents will ask, well, what happens if the child has allergies? And there's only been one paper on this looking at IgE levels, which is a marker of inflammation. And it showed that the Buteco method reduced IgE levels. And it's very understudied. We, I was involved in a couple of different studies that were published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, looking at 35 children who were mouth breathing um, with asthma. And all of these children, their lung parameters improved, their FEV, et cetera, and they had less missed days. They had less absenteeism from school. And, you know, Australia was where the first clinical trial happened in 1994. And it took four years for this trial to be published. And even then, Professor Charles Mitchell, he said, he said asthmatics, he said they feel much better. And when you compare in that trial, there were 40 people in total. Initially, it was 170 people. But by the time they had matched and selected participants, it was down to 40. 20 were in the Buteco group and 20 were doing the in-house hospital program for asthma at the Matter Hospital in Brisbane. So the in-house hospital program, the it, trial was conducted over three months and lung function was measured at the start of the trial, along with quality of life and asthma medications. And at the end of the three months, the Buteco group had 70% less symptoms. They had 90% less need for rescue medication. They had 49% less need for inhaled corticosteroids. They were able to achieve the same lung function at the end of the trial as they had at the start, but a much better quality of life and much less need for medication. And Charles Mitchell, he said, he said, yes, he said asthmatics, he said they feel much better, but because they can blow no harder in terms of the forced expiratory volume, he said they're no better. And a strange way to interpret it because he should have been saying, oh my God, this is wonderful. Here we have a group of asthmatics. We can achieve improved quality of life with 70% less symptoms and 49% less need for inhaled corticosteroid. The in-house hospital program had 0% change. And it could be likely that still it's still the same program that's taught in the Matter Hospital in Brisbane. So, you know, human beings, we are very resistant to change. And especially when something is a little bit against the norms and the trainings and the beliefs of the profession. 
And that's why I put Max Planck's quotation. I don't know if you've seen it, but I put it just at the very start that a new scientific advance, it doesn't happen because the current generation see it, but it happens when the current generation dies out and a new generation grows up and they are familiar with it. And you know what? Maybe, and hopefully I'm wrong, but we'll see. <laughs> with, with breathing, it's that critical. So, you, you know, you, it, it may be that the old generation dies out. And <laughs> but, but, I mean, you, you're kind of experiencing this, right? Like we're seeing a shift, you know, like when, from when you started this, you know, it, it really was very, very, very niche. You know, you'd still say yes. it's quite niche in terms of how the um, you know, medical professional um, you know, view and experience it. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier too, that you, um, you know, mindfulness and yoga movements, you know, these are all very big movements, but they don't, there's, there's definitely a block in terms of, um, you know, how people accept certain kind of terminology with techniques. And yeah, it, it's a really, really funny one that kind of sits right in the middle there that um, is becoming more, more acknowledged, but it's just, um, yeah, just still a little bit behind there. Can you just quickly, um, just for people that don't know what Botaco breathing is, can you just quickly give us a little background on that? So as was the basis of it, it was developed by a Russian doctor, Konstantin Botaco, and it was in about 1957 or thereabouts that when he was monitoring sick patients, he started noticing that as the patients became sicker, they were breathing harder and faster and more noticeable breathing. And he asked, was it their sickness that is causing the change to their breathing? Or is it the change in their breathing patterns which is feeding back into their sickness? And he had high blood pressure at the time. He was a young man, I think 26 years of age. And he started slowing down his own breathing. And he was able to normalize his blood pressure. Now, Buteco centred and focused all of his findings on carbon dioxide, and probably that's part of the reason why it was it was slow to being embraced by the medical community. But we have to bear this in mind. Buteco made his discovery 50 years ago, 60 years ago. The science has moved on. And now when we look at his technique, one that's very, very plausible is when you breathe light, it stimulates the vagus nerve. It increases the sensitivity of the bar receptors and improves heart rate variability. Nose breathing during sleep improves HRV. Breathing through the nose with greater amplitude of the diaphragm improves heart rate variability. And slow breathing. And, you know, if you have a person with dysfunctional breathing patterns, very often they are breathing a little bit faster and harder, breathing a little bit irregular and upper chest. And a lot of the time, it's not that somebody is having a panic attack in front of you. Like I had 30 people on earlier on and it was for sleep, sleep disorder breathing, for insomnia, for snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. And it's really amazing. You know, you can see so many different breathing patterns amongst a group of individuals. And it didn't matter whether they were young. Some of the, the younger people had worse breathing than the older people and they didn't have respiratory issues. But there was one girl in particular, she was probably early 20s very much fast breathing, upper chest breathing. And I asked, do you have asthma? And she said, no. And I said, if you're breathing like that, that's definitely impacting you. And your stress levels are going to be higher because, you know, there's something synonymous with breathing. And we have to bear just even one thing. If we were to look at the inhalation and the exhalation and the inhalation through the nose and the exhalation through the nose and the inhalation, the vagus nerve is stepping back 
And it's the exhalation that's primarily under the control of the parasympathetic response or the body's relaxation response. And any time as human beings, if we are stressed, and whenever we were stressed throughout our evolution, stress was always accompanied with faster and upper chest breathing. So any time that we are breathing faster and upper chest, that information is relayed from the body back to the brain. And the brain is interpreting that fast and upper chest breathing is not good and that the body is in an unsafe environment. And the brain is relaying signals accordingly. Even when we're in a stressed, stressful situation and we naturally respond with faster and harder breathing, it's very important to step back and just to focus on your breath and just have a really prolonged and relaxed exhalation. That's all it is. It's not so much the inhalation, but it's the exhalation. And if you have a prolonged and relaxed exhalation, the feedback is from the body back to the brain and the brain is interpreting it that the body is in a safe environment because the breathing is slow and prolonged. Very simple hacking tool. I wish I had it even going into exams. You know, I wish I had it in any events. Like I'll give you an example. We were doing it by Zoom. I had 30 people online. I didn't even have the link. So here I am calling Anna. Anna is looking for the link. So we're 30 people waiting to join in. I couldn't find the link. So, so you know, and here I'm saying, okay, well, this is going to look well. You know, five minutes later, still looking well. So what do I do? Well, I can't do much about it. I'm waiting for Anna to send me the link. So I started slowing down my breathing, slowing down my breathing. Great little hack, you know. So even no matter what, whatever little situation presents itself, there's something miraculous about the breath. And there, you know, this information is not new. I put a chapter in for females. Okay, as a man, and probably as an Irish man and a shy Irish man for the best of it, I wasn't going to even touch on breathing for females and I wouldn't have brought up monthly cycle or anything like that. But now nearly 50, so I'm a bit more mature than I was when I was 30. So, <laughs> you know, it was a musician that I was talking about to six months ago and he started talking about his fiance, and she was having terrible symptoms of PMS. And I said, there is a connection there, but I told him I hadn't really gone into it in that much depth. So I started going back through the stuff that I had and I started looking around and I said, couldn't believe it. This has been around since 1905. And bearing in mind that 50% or even more of my clients were females, and I had overlooked it as well. And during the monthly cycle, post-ovulation, days 10 to days 22, which is middle luteal phase, there's an increase in progesterone. Re progesterone is a respiratory stimulant. And breathing becomes faster and harder, and carbon dioxide levels can drop by 25% during this time. It increases pain, it lowers pain threshold, it affects anxiety, panic, the female is more likely to feel air hunger, their sleep is more likely to be impacted, temporomandibular joint pain. Like, you know, the symptoms of PMS can be influenced by breathing patterns. Why aren't we telling females, keep an eye on your breathing throughout your monthly cycle? And if you notice that your control pause, which is a measurement of functional breathing, and by the way, Buteco did say the control pause gives you an indicator of carbon dioxide levels. He wasn't correct. However, the control pause does give you a good indicator of functional breathing. And there was a study on this published in 2018, looking at 51 subjects. So you can imagine a female that if they ha are having quite pronounced symptoms and temporomandibular joint pain and fibromyalgia, and there's been situations that 
females would meet the diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia during the middle luteal phase, and they wouldn't meet the diagnostic criteria during the follicular phase. Like, God almighty, what's, what's going on here? You know, and all it takes for a female is know her breathing and know that when she goes through this time of the month, does she start noticing her breathing is getting a little bit faster and a little bit more effortful? Start practicing breathing exercises to slow down breathing. And you can help to negate some of the symptoms for PMS. There's been a small amount of studies on it, not enough. But you know what? There's no side effects. One of the most beautiful things in the world is to take your attention out of the mind and bring it into the body and place it on the breath. You know, it's it's really good. So it's worth doing. Absolutely. And the the connections to uh, to all parts of the body, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the female, you know, hormone cycle, like the, we're starting to see how we can apply this in nearly air, every area of medicine, you know, in, in the dental chair, I'm looking and thinking about this all the time that you cannot really proceed without talking to a patient about breathing. And, you know, we, we've probably talked a little bit more about um, about daytime breathing, which is great because I think people more suffer from the the, the sleep side of it in terms mm. of, um, you know, how they're, they're breathing incorrectly at night. And that's probably a little bit better known, right, besides asthma, that sleep apnea is kind of the the, the bad breathing side of things. But the, there's Sleep apnea in the last 10 years has been a little bit more defined and it's not so well known. Um, and you published a paper last year on um, that talked about these different um, categorisa- categorizations. Mm. And I see this in, you know, in the chair where the, the diagnosis is very difficult for a patient to get. So if they're snoring at night and there's different things happening, um, can, can you just run through some of the types of sleep apnea um, that yeah. the literature has um, has uh, told us about and how it starts to relate to uh, to breathing patterns? Sure. So it's probably going back maybe 2007, 2008 that sleep medicine started to change. And it was no longer that sleep apnea was regarded solely as an anatomical issue. So for for decades, since back into the 1970s, sleep apnea was regarded that the problem was a compromised airway. The airway was too narrow, and this in turn was causing collapse of the airway during sleep. So in 2007 and 2008, that's when researchers started to realize that there are four different characteristics involved in obstructive sleep apnea, and only one of them is anatomical, and that's called PCRIT. And this is the pharyngeal closing pressure. So it's basically the, the suction pressure at which the airway can collapse. And you don't want your airway collapsing at a low suction pressure. You need the airway to be able to withstand a good suction pressure. And so you can then ask, well, how could that impact or how could breathing play a role here? What causes the suction pressure is not just the diameter of the airway, but it's also flow. And I always use the engine, the, the analogy of an engineer. If I asked an engineer to come into my house and put a pipe from one end of the house to the other, The engineer is not just going to choose the diameter of a pipe willy-nilly. The engineer is going to ask, what's the flow going through that pipe? Now, the human airway is a pipe. And at the moment, all of the concentration is on the pipe and nobody seems to be looking at the flow. And you can have a person with breathing pattern disorders with a low control pause that are breathing a little bit harder, a little bit faster, but that's going to generate resistance to breathing. 
And as air is sucked into the lungs, that increased negative pressure as air is drawn into the lungs is going to contribute to collapse of the airway. Another aspect is whether the person has their mouth open or closed and their correct tongue resting posture. So, for example, you know, our tongue has got two places to be. It's either resting in the roof of the mouth, but if we have the mouth open, we cannot have the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. So mouth breathers invariably will have a tongue in incorrect resting posture, either mid or low resting posture, and more likely to encroach on the airways. We know that 50% of the adult population are mouth breathing during sleep. And a recent study in, published in the larger scope in May of 2020 looked at 95, 95 individuals with obstructive sleep apnea. Only 35 out of the 95 were solely nasal breathers. 11 people were solely mouth breathers and the remainder were switching from mouth to nose breathing during sleep. And these were relatively young people. We're talking about 45 to 51 years of age. The AHI index in the mouth breathing group was 52 events per hour. In the nose and mouth breathing group, it was something like 47 events. But in the nose breathing only group, it was 27 events per hour. Still bordering on severe, moderate to severe, but almost half what the sole mouth breathing group was. And blood oxygen saturation was more severe in the mouth breathing group. So in terms of PCRIT, we do need to teach how to bring breathing so that it's light and that it's slow. And also that it's slow because the diaphragm breathing muscle is not just for respiration. But when we breathe with greater amplitude of the diaphragm, it increases lung volume. And when there is an increase in lung volume, the throat is stiffer and less likely to collapse. And this was published in the, in the Lancet back in 2014. Now, as adults, and especially as males, once we hit a certain age, we put on a bit of weight and we normally put a bit of weight on the belly. And it, the weight on the belly can be problematic because it impinges the movement of the diaphragm. And it's more likely to cause our breathing to be upper chest. And when our breathing is upper chest, then the throat is more likely to collapse. So that would be factors that are influencing PCRIT. Correct tongue resting posture, breathing in and out through the nose, the flow of breathing, how hard are you breathing, how fast are you breathing, and how low are you breathing. The second phenotype that we could look at is called loop gain. And the one that we really need to look at is high loop gain. And high loop gain can be measured by virtue of breath hold time during wakefulness. Now, as I said, we've been using breath hold time for 20 years. We always used it to assess breathing patterns. And there was a paper by Messino in 2018 looking at 20 individuals, measured their breath toll time, and individuals with high loop gain had a shorter breath toll time. And what high loop gain? This is an interesting one. Aside from anatomical compromise, high loop gain is the most common phenotype. So 30% of the sleep apnea population have high loop gain. And what it means is that anatomical interventions don't work. And this will include mandibular advancement device and surgery. So say, for example, you have a patient going to their doctor. And if the dentist is fitting them with a mandibular advancement device, if this patient has high loop gain, the outcome is going to be its reduced successful outcome. So high loop gain can be measured. You know, if you have, say, a patient coming in and you have the person sit down for about five minutes, allow their breathing to settle, and then take a breath in and out through the nose and pinch their nose and hold their breath and time how long, how many seconds can they hold their breath for 
until they can feel, say, the first definite desire to breed. So that's the control pause from Buteco. If the control pause is less than 15 seconds, it's really suggesting that the person is high looking. And what I would be saying is, well, how do you improve that? That's when you practice breed light. And even for 15 minutes before sleep, to sit down, put one hand on your chest, one hand on your tummy, and just gently slow down the speed of your breathing, almost that your breath is imperceptible. Really slow down the speed of the air coming into the nose and have a very relaxed and slow, gentle breath out to the point that you feel a tolerable air hunger. And do that for 10 or 15 minutes. You'll start feeling drowsy. You'll have increased watery saliva in the mouth. But what's more, when you expose the body to increased carbon dioxide, and you know this is happening when you feel air hunger, it does reduce the chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. Now, what this means is high loop gain in short is if they stop breathing during sleep, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood because it cannot leave the, the body through the lungs. And as the person continues to stop breathing, carbon dioxide is increasing. But people with high loop gain have exaggerated ventilation to minimal increases of CO2. So when they resume breathing, they resume breathing with such exaggerated ventilation. And now they blow off too much carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide goes from hypercapnia during the stopping of the breath to hypocapnia as a result of the hyperventilation post-apnea. Now, carbon dioxide is the primary drive to breed. And when CO2 in the blood is too low, the brain doesn't send the signal to breed. This can bring on a central apnea, but also... When the brain doesn't send a signal to breathe, the output from the brain to the upper airway dilator muscles is reduced. So the upper airway doesn't do its job as effectively. So that's why I suppose loop gain, high loop gain is like a vicious circle. Now that we're there, um, can you describe, because I think carbon dioxide, obviously, you know, you've written a lot about it, but I think most people still see it as the waste gas. Can mm. you describe how it's involved in respiration and how we need to kind of deepen our relationship with carbon dioxide? Yeah. So back in 1904, it was a Danish physiologist, Christian Bohr, who discovered it's the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood, which is a catalyst for the re release of oxygen from the hemoglobin which is the protein within the red blood cells. So I suppose you can imagine that as we as human beings, we take in a breath of fresh air into our nose, ideally, and it arrives into the lungs. And oxygen passes from the lungs into the blood. But oxygen is relatively insoluble in the blood. So 98% of oxygen in the blood is carried by hemoglobin, which is the protein within the red blood cell. So you can imagine this hemoglobin oxygenated is bringing, you know, this blood is going throughout, throughout the body. And what causes hemoglobin to release oxygen is the increase of carbon dioxide and drop to blood pH. And I suppose the better way to remember what, what it be would, if you go for a run, you're really going to be working the muscles in your legs. And as you're working the muscles in your legs, you're generating more carbon dioxide. So as the muscles in the legs are generating more carbon dioxide, that's going to be a catalyst for hemoglobin to release up more oxygen to those muscles. So oxygen is delivered to the muscles that need it the most. So that's where carbon dioxide plays a role. But carbon dioxide is not just in terms of, that's called the Bohr effect, but carbon dioxide is not just about, you know, reducing the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen, but also it plays a role in blood circulation. I had cold hands and feet for 20 years and I never associated that down to my poor breathing patterns. 
So I as a teenager and young adult, mouth breathing a little bit faster breathing and harder breathing, blowing off too much carbon dioxide. And as a result, it causes blood vessels to constrict. So I suppose the ironic thing is that, you know, how often do we hear, take a deep breath, and the next thing is you hear this big full breath of air coming in. I have to say I cringe when I hear it. And I hear it all the time, but now I say, oh, yeah, here we go again. You know, you people who are teaching breathing exercises and they're telling their students, now you're really filling those lungs and you're hearing the students taking this wonderful, oh, bring in as much oxygen as possible, but they don't realize they're blowing off too much carbon dioxide. And if that happens, your blood vessels are constricting and less oxygen is getting delivered throughout the body. So I think it's ironic, you know, if, if your goal is to improve your blood circulation, your breathing should be light. And if your goal is to improve oxygen delivery, your breathing should be light. Uh, it's funny. So sometimes you see it in the dental setting because obviously it's a very, very stressful situation sometimes. And, um, you know, when it, it's when I've, I'm new to a patient and we're in a stressful situation and, and I'm trying to take them back to the breath of saying, we'll breathe deeply through. And some of the breathing patterns I see in that situation, <laughs> it's you would be astonished as to what people think is going to calm their body down. And it's just absolutely, you know, there's no um, understanding of how to use their breath to calm their, their, yes. their nerves. It's, but Stephen, and- this is where this is where our yoga instructors should have been able to get this information out there, you know, honestly. And, uh, you know, yoga is wonderful and it has such a tremendous reach. But the instructors are teaching breathing and they don't necessarily know the physiology of it. And that's not enough because when I say something like that, People start criticizing what I'm saying. But I was that kid and teenager. You know, why is it so, you know, why is there that perception in the Western world that the more air you breathe, the better it is for you? If you ask any person, take five or six big breaths in and out of your mouth and ask them, how does their head feel? And most of them will tell you that they feel lightheaded and dizzy. You know, that's cause and effect. So... I think with yoga too is that they understand the organs and muscular system very well. Like their anatomy there is really, really good, but the respiratory physiology is is just not there. They they don't have that understanding, which is kind of what the the, the where the modern side of it really plugs in so well. Yeah, so it, it's it's true that they you know that there are a lot there's a lot of like kind of breath guidance in yoga, yet they. The, the physiology side of it in that sense might not be there. So I, I think it's a really interesting criticism. That's what, where we have to be at, right? We have to understand yes. what's but, useful and what needs to be fixed. That's, exactly. that's my approach to it, right? Yeah. Can you imagine the millions of people going to their yoga practice this week? Millions. And if the instructor was teaching them, let's improve your blood flow and oxygen delivery. We're going to have you breathe light. We're going to purposely have you underbreed for a period of time. Now we're going to go on to focusing on the biomechanics. Now we're going to focus on resonance frequency breathing. And you know, this is, this is really good stuff. And this really ties in such wonderfully with yoga. And there was a book written by Robin Rottenberg. This book here. So Robin is a yoga instructor and 30 years teaching um, pranayama. And she developed chronic fatigue and I think sleep apnea as well. And she was curious about yoga And she came across the Buteco method and she started applying it and it it made a significant difference. And she was then thinking, well, what's the difference here? So she went back to the the sutras and she went back quite a bit as far as she could go. 
how was the original yoga breathing described? And the word that was described was subtle. And she found this amazing. She ended up writing, it's what, a hundred thousand word book on the back of that subtle breathing. And she, as a yoga therapist, will say that the message got distorted along the telephone wires. So, you know, and hopefully, I'm hoping that 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 yoga instructors will start embracing it and going back to the original breathing as it as it was to be taught. There's been a few messages that have been kind of a little bit distorted as they've they've come through, but the, it's so interesting how you find like such um, wise, ancient, um, you know, mm. pieces of information in text that we, we're only just starting to understand. You know, that's only one word, but it describes exactly how you should breathe. And uh, I want to dive into quickly those um, those aspects of breathing, but I thought I'd just bring this question up. Um, so Claudia says, uh, Patrick's a great guest, but how can breathing um, improve gut issues? Uh, have you observed any side effects of changing mouth breathing to nose breathing to the gut? Yeah, I suppose there's two aspects there that I would look at. One is in terms of when you're breathing through your nose, you're more likely to get greater amplitude of the diaphragm. And we have to bear in mind that every time that the diaphragm moves, you know, as you breathe in, your diaphragm is moving downwards during rest by about one to two centimeters. And it's massaging all of the internal organs. Another aspect is the impact that we're having on the autonomic nervous system. You know, does stress impact gut health? And the likelihood is that, yes, conditions can be made worse by stress, irritable bowel syndrome, for example. So what we can have to do is to achieve a better balance in the autonomic nervous system so that conditions that may be aggravated by stress, by improved sleep, by improved balance in terms of the, you know, the parasympathetic and sympathetic, that we can help those issues. It's not an area that I focused on all that much, but there has been um, written reports and definitely by some individuals looking at chronic hyperventilation and the impact on gut health. And in terms of that, when you address and improve functional breathing, you can improve blood flow and you can improve oxygen delivery and the GI tract um, can, can only be helped by that. So other than that, Claudia, I haven't really dug that deeply into it. So there's just a couple of points on it. Yeah, the control of the autonomic nervous system is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, especially in um, people with upper airway resistance syndrome, they yes. they they chronically report this this digestive system that's locked up. It just doesn't work very well. You know, it's a host of symptoms. But it seems that, um, yeah, the, the reconnecting to these, these breathing patterns can help to kind of kick this um, rest and digest system back into play. Yes. And also bodily systems disturbed by stress. And I think this is where a lot of the research has come out over the last few years, especially looking at heart rate variability. You know, now there's an objective and clinical measure of vagal tone. And also we can determine the impact that stress has on the human body, because as was traditionally, a person goes to their doctor and they're going to say to their doctor, doctor, I just really feel stressed. And the doctor can be looking at the patient And there's no way of knowing the impact the stress has on that person. But if the doctor was to assess their heart rate variability, they would be able to get an idea of that. And what's more, HRV is just a measurement. The real key is how could we help to augment it to improve it? Um, So, yeah, I think there's a nice connection there. Yeah, absolutely. Patrick, in your book, The Breathing Cure, you um, you describe nicely uh, with a kind of a three-part um, circular graph the the three aspects of of 
of breathing and um, you know how it all kind of comes together. Can you give people a bit of a picture um, as to the we, we've kind of gone over it, but as to the components mm-hmm. of breathing and yeah. how they all kind of come together to deliver gases to throughout the body into the brain? Sure. So the 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 core of this is going to be breathing in and out through the nose. That's absolutely where it goes from day dot. Um, breathing in through the nose because, of course, the, the benefits of nasal breathing, but also breathing out through the nose because the nose recovers heat and moisture on the exhale breath. And also the nose, by breathing out through the nose, you have to keep the nose more open. When you use your nose and breathing in and out, you're more likely to breathe slower. So during during wakefulness, your nose imposes a resistance to your breathing that's about two to three times out of the mouth. Whereas mouth breathing is typically faster breathing, fast, and it's also activating the upper chest. So mouth breathing is fast breathing and more upper chest breathing and more likely, for example, to um, uh, impact negatively impact blood gases. Not always so, but more likely. When you switch to nasal breathing, if you go for a walk with your mouth closed, you might feel an increased air hunger. That's not a bad thing because that signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And what you're doing is during your walk, then you're exposing the body to increased carbon dioxide, which in turn can help to reduce the body's sensitivity to the gas because carbon dioxide is the primary driver to breathe. So every breath that you take is not driven by oxygen, but it's driven by increased carbon dioxide in the blood. So carbon dioxide increases in the blood, blood pH drops, and the brain is sending a signal to breathe on that. But if you're overly sensitive to the buildup, to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, your breathing typically is faster and harder. So the biochemical aspect is looking at normalizing minute ventilation. And when we look at the volume of air that we breathe per minute, that's calculated by the respiratory rate, which is the number of breaths per minute multiplied by the tidal volume, which is the volume of of one breath. So the respiratory rate multiplied by the tidal volume gives you minute ventilation. But we were talking about asthma earlier on and the Matter Hospital trial that I spoke about, the individuals there during rest were breathing 14 litres of air per minute. So 14 litres. And normal breathing is four to six litres. And using the Buteco method, the instructor who was Tess Graham, who was based in Australia, as far as I know, it was Tess. She brought the minute ventilation from 14 litres down to 9.6 litres. And there was a direct correlation between the reduction in minute ventilation and the reduction in rescue medication need. So straight away, we see this connection there. Now, carbon dioxide didn't increase all that much. It increased by two millimetres of mercury. But the biochemistry is about reducing the chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. Now, then we can focus on the biomechanics and the biomechanics simply means, are you breathing low you, with greater amplitude of the diaphragm or are you breathing a little bit upper chest? And typically during rest, we want about 80% of the movement driven by the diaphragm. And a good gauge is to have your hands either side of your lower two ribs. And as you breathe in, can you feel your lower ribs moving out? Because it takes what's called intra-abdominal pressure to push the ribs outwards. So it's not necessarily just that when the diaphragm is moving downwards, yes, you'll get some frontal movement. So your, your, your abdomen will come out a little bit, but your ribs will come out and you'll have some movement to the back. So we have to think of the core as a box. So you have the diaphragm to the front. You've got the abs. Sorry, you've got the diaphragm to the top. You've got the abs to the front, the spinal muscles to the back, and you've got the pelvic floor to the bottom. And they're all working in synchronicity um, with each other. 
So the biomechanics is looking at the importance of breathing using with good amplitude of the diaphragm because the diaphragm breathing muscle is not just for respiration. It's also connected with the emotions and also in terms of it provides what's called intra-abdominal pressure to provide stabilization for the spine. So, for example, 50% of people with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing patterns. Now, is it the lower back pain which is causing dysfunctional breathing or is it because the person is breathing upper chest breathing? So they're not getting the benefit of the movement of the diaphragm. It's reducing intra-abdominal pressure and it's not getting support for the spine. So functional breathing and functional movement go together. That's all focusing on the biomechanics. And then the number three dimension is I brought in was resonance frequency breathing. And this really talks about altering and influencing the autonomic nervous system. So over the years, going on about 30 years, that researchers know that the ideal respiratory rate to practice for different periods throughout the time, not that you need to be breathing this all day long every day, no. But if you were to practice, say, 10 minutes and you were focusing on the airflow coming into your nose and focusing on the airflow leaving your nose, breathe in for five seconds and breathe out for five seconds. And what that would mean is that you're breathing a six breaths per minute. So when you reduce the respiratory rate to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute, you're stimulating the vagus nerve and you're also increasing the sensitivity of the baroreflex or baroreceptors. And um, these are pressure receptors located in the major blood vessels and they're continuously monitoring your blood pressure. And when your blood pressure increases, the baroreceptors immediately respond by sending signals to the blood vessels to, to open up and also for your heart rate to come down. And conversely, if your blood pressure drops, the baroreceptors send an immediate message for the blood vessels to constrict and the heart rate to increase. And it's the sensitivity of the baroreceptors which are a very important indicator of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So the functioning of your body that you don't have to think about. So by slowing down your breathing to six breaths per minute, it also helps other things, for example, improving alveolar ventilation. But more of the research is focused on heart rate variability. So in one aspect, you have the biochemistry and you can influence your blood circulation and oxygen delivery, your degree of breathlessness during physical exercise. And also, you know, it's likely to be playing some role in terms of opening up the nose and opening up the lungs. So that's the biochemical aspect of it. The biomechanical aspect is the importance centered on improving the functioning of the diaphragm. And then resonance frequency breathing is about, you know, activating that balance in terms of the, the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest, and the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight. You don't want to be switched on all the time, but you don't want to be switched off all the time. You want to have them in balance, and that's a marker of resilience. It's an amazing way to kind of simplify, but also show us how complex it is at the same time. It, it really is, you know, it, it's quite a remarkable system we have within yes. us. Um, Patrick, to, to finish this out, um, you know, the, another aspect you, you write about is the psychological in, input into, yes. into breathing. How do, you, how do you connect this into people that have a lot of anxiety and, and stress in their life to how they breathe? And what's that, where, where do you see that connection um, in terms wow. of? You know, it's like breathing. in 2010, I was working with a lot of people primarily with stress and anxiety and panic disorder because Ireland was a basket case economically. 
And, you know, we had a lot of angst here, a lot of people losing houses, unfortunately, a lot of people um, dying by suicide. And I had 3,000 people who come in. I brought together mindfulness and Buteco. I, I really put it out there that mindfulness is wonderful. And I am a big fan of mindfulness. I've done Vapassana courses, but it doesn't address functional breathing patterns. And if I was to say, you know, somebody coming in with a racing mind or somebody coming in with panic disorder, the first approach that I would look at is let's start looking at your sleep quality because I don't think you you can do, you know, unless you get really good quality sleep, you're not going to get the, the rest isn't going to fall into place. And then I would focus on the biochemistry, improving blood flow to the brain, but I wouldn't do it by doing slow breathing. I would do it by small breath holds because that way we can also have to stimulate the vagus nerve to calm the central nervous system to improve blood flow to the brain. And then I would bring in slow breathing, especially the prolonged exhalation. And then we would go from there into the biomechanics and from there into resonance frequency breathing. And only then would I actually bring in mindfulness. Again, it's not a criticism, but I often feel that the very people who need mindfulness most, they cannot do it. If your mind is racing, if you're in a state of emotional turmoil, the last thing that you're going to do, the last thing that you want to do is focus on your breathing. So let's start doing breath holes or go for a walk with your mouth closed or breathe in through your nose and breathe out through your nose and pinch your nose and walk four or five paces holding your breath because this can help to calm your central nervous system. And when your central nervous system is becoming calmer, then it's a lot easier to focus on your breathing. So that's the focus of my current work. And it's not going to be as big a book as The Breathing Cure because I'm writing it for the attention deficit alpha male. And that's who I'm reaching out to because between 2010 and 2013, I had 3,000 people come in for these courses. They were short courses and 90% of them were female. And I said, where are all the males in this? And that's where the oxygen advantage came out because the oxygen advantage was all about doing long breath holds and stressing the body and pushing yourself. But we were able to slip in we were slipping in breathing and mental health in the back door, but we weren't calling it any of that. And that's the way it is going to be for the new book. So, you know, it's focus and concentration. And it's all tying in together because if the mind is racing, there's not a chance in hell that you have focus and you don't have that one pointed attention. You know, when the mind is constantly bombarded with thoughts, you don't produce quality of work. Because in order to produce a quality of work, you need to have your attention on doing what you're doing. But if you're living in your head, if you're immersed in thought, if you're drowning in thought, it's not going to happen. So that's where it's going. So I'm kind of looking at improving people's capacity to bring a stillness and a quietness to the mind, but doing it through the focus, doing it through that direction with focus, not in saying, you know, I'm going to help you with your panic or anxiety. Many people have racing minds. They don't consider that they have anxiety. Let's reach out to the normal person, you know, and start getting the information out that way. I have to say that that's exactly, you know, was my experience when I was starting to step into all this, that sitting and meditating and so forth just wasn't something anywhere in my, you know, as, as someone that was, you know, you know, trying to be high achieving, but also too, my breathing patterns weren't anywhere near the um, the space where I could be comfortable to do that. So I, I think that's a really good approach. And I think there's a huge need there. And, yeah. you know, just people that just won't 
um, kind of put those two dots together. So it's an amazing, it's an amazing connection you're making. Patrick, to round this off, um, I, I've just, there's an interesting question here. What are your thoughts on Wim Hof method? I've always questioned the lack of nose breathing here, but he seems to have such amazing effects. <laughs> it's it's a stressor. Um, you know, in, in fairness to him, he's done a lot of great work in putting information out there about breathing. So it's a technique that's involving hyperventilation for 30 breaths, exhale, hold, breathe in for 10 seconds and do another sec- cycle. Um, you know, I, the one thing that I will say about breathing, it's very important to tailor breathing exercises to suit the individual. There are some people who need to upregulate and the Wim Hof method will be excellent for stressing. But there are plenty of people who need to downregulate. And also, if you think even if you went to do physical exercise, you will normally start off with a warm up, then you do your physical exercise and then you're going to cool down. So if you're doing a breathing exercise, also think about it the same way. Start off nice and easy. Prepare your body, then go into the full cycle, but always recover. So, for example, we've put in exercises now because we're using this with the oxygen advantage. And that's the one thing that the oxygen advantage has given me the freedom. I wasn't constrained with the Buteco method. With the Buteco method, it's Buteco method. With yeah. oxygen advantage, we, we have increased it to 26 exercises. And we've increased it based on the experience of our instructors. And, you know, bringing in those hyperventilation exercises, because they are stressors, you know, you are exercising the breathing muscles, you're giving yourself a bit of a workout, you're disturbing blood gases, you're creating a hypoxic effect, etc. Stress your body, but also recover. So we do the hyperventilation, we do breath tolling, but then we do breathe light. And we also make sure that we don't want our blood oxygen saturation going down below 60%. Just a little bit risky. I don't want anybody passing out on me. So, you know, you have to bear that in mind. Absolutely. Patrick, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I know it's late and you need to get to bed. (laughs) Where can people find you online? And do you have a copy of the book there with you or I'll I'll post it? Yeah. um, One second. There's a few, there's a few of them, right? It's, (laughs) we have to count through the eight books that Patrick has written to find the new one, the breathing cure. So the book itself is that one there. So it's called a breathing cure. The camera is a different angle. So it's a pretty big one. Now don't put, don't let that put, it off, put you off. Um, <laughs> I think it's accessible enough. Chapter two is really where you want to go with it. And then if you want to expand a little bit more, you can do. The tape that we use for Mountain, I forgot to kind of show it to you. If you don't yeah. mind, can I just show you do a quick demonstration? Yeah. So this here is, is Myo Tape. And we call it Myo Tape because of the application with Myo Functional Therapy. And this was what we use for kids, getting them to switch to nasal breathing and adults and also during sleep. So we stretch it about 40%. Well, I give it a good stretch. Now, it's elasticated and it's cotton. And you see it's pouting my lips, but it's bi-directional stretch. It's also activating the orbicular source muscle. So it's a useful tape and it also takes any perception of risk because now touch wood, we didn't have issues when we were using the tape across the lips. But, you know, there's always that small risk there. And with that, then you can you can isolate that. So in terms of social media, the Buteco Clinic and Oxygen Advantage, and we're on Instagram. All of our videos, a lot of them are up on YouTube. So you'll see different videos. The entire children's program is completely free. Um, you'll see that on YouTube as well. So you'll get it 
put in Patrick McKeown children's breathing exercise or whatever, you'll, you'll find it that way. Patrick, your work is changing the world literally. You know, so I, I can't thank you enough for your commitment and to the way you're kind of furthering this. You know, it, it really is going the right direction. So, you know, I'm looking forward to to furthering this conversation and hearing about all of this. I've got so many questions. We're going to have to do this again sometime. But you have to go to bed. <laughs> Thanks so much, Stephen. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you learned something and you've got a takeaway that you can apply to your own life or to a loved one's. If you did enjoy today's show, you can help us get the word out by leaving a review on iTunes. It helps others to find the podcast. Or you can also share directly to a friend. For more information, you can join my mailing list at drstephenlin.com or follow along at social media on Instagram at drstephenlin and Facebook, facebook.com slash drstephenlin. I really look forward to sharing more of the mouth-brain connection with you next week. Mm-hmm.